I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Paul Vandeventer. Paul Vandeventer, <laughs> founding president and CEO of Community Partners, grew up in Southern California's Antelope Valley. He majored in literature at UC Santa Cruz and went on to participate in Coro's prestigious civic leadership development program, which anchored his focus in public affairs and public service. In the 1980s, he served on the staff of the California Community Foundation, becoming executive vice president. In 1992, he led the startup effort that established community partners as an incubator for social and civic entrepreneurs and community initiatives in Southern California. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Paul Vandeventer. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. It's a great pleasure to moderate this forum. If we can just take a moment of appreciation for one of the premier not-for-profit civic institutions of Los Angeles, Zocalo, that has been the product of Gregory's unrelenting energy for so many years now, I think it's one of the great things of Los Angeles, and I hope you do, too. Before we get started, let me find out who's in the audience tonight. I saw a lot of friends coming in the door, um, and I know uh, somewhat where those folks are from, but I want to give a, the panel a sense of who's in the room. So uh, if you run or work in a nonprofit organization, if you run one or you work in one, uh, can you raise your hand? Whew. Okay. That's the end. So this is, this, this is like a wake then for you guys, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> how about... How about um, Government agencies. How about nonprofits that have significant government agency contracts? Yeah, okay, a little few more there. All right. Uh, anybody in business or a commercial venture? A few of you? Any major philanthropists in the room? <laughs> Not e that will e raise their hand. <laughs> <laughs> Eli Broad, where are you? Um, consultants? Okay, uh, and uh, people unemployed because of the economic downturn and in need of a job. <laughs> there we go. See that lady afterwards. Let me set the scene a little bit here. Um, my impression is, I don't know if you share it, but my impression is that many leaders and uh, staff of nonprofit organizations in Southern California are in a wait and see mode. And what they're waiting to see is what happens with those shrunken portfolios of private foundations. Uh, in many cases, the reports I'm getting are 30 to 40% shrunken in terms of their fair market value. And if fair market value is a determinant of payout, uh, then you can make the adjustment. Um, a big deal. Um, and uh, donor wallets uh, slapping shut. People are hearing that uh, a lot these days. Um, let me read to you a few statistics uh, generated by the Center for Nonprofit Management. I saw uh, Regina Birdsell over there tonight. Um, donations, uh, 200, 260 different organizations surveyed uh, responded. Um, donations to your organizations decreasing. 50% of those organizations said that's the case. Uh, too soon to know for 28% 28 others. Foundation support at your organization decreasing 42.2%. And that's and the others, the 30% too early to know. What trends are you seeing in corporate giving to your organization? Uh, decreasing 47.4%. Government funding at your organization decreasing 32.2%. Um, and what actions has your organization taken in response to the recession? Um, I, 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 
I categorize the responses in two ways, hustling and hunkering down. 79% uh, looking for new sources of revenue and new ways to engage their boards of directors, and that's the hustling bunch. And then the hunkering down bunch are delaying planned new initiatives, freezing, uh, 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 hiring freezes, staff cuts, and service reductions. Um, and that ranges from about 40% down to 20% of those groups. Um, so that's not a non-scientific survey, but it is a telling survey about everybody watching and waiting and being prepared. Um, we're seeing a diminished public purse right now, hugely diminished. Uh, uh, check the statistics at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities today. 44 states facing budget shortfalls totaling between 350 and 400 billion dollars. Uh, state revenue collections down right now at least 5%. Cuts to social health and education service, services expected in at least half of those 44 states. At least half of those 44 states. Employment worsening now over 8% in California. Nationally 6.7%. Many ex economists expect before the damage is over 85 to 9% nationally. Um, which means some states are going to be disproportionately greater. Bob Greenstein, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, predicts uh, uh, there are about 35 to 40 uh, million people in poverty in the United States right now. A quick addition in the next 18 months of 8 million more people in poverty. Um, obviously, as you've heard and I've heard, it's the worst economic contraction in 80 years. Um, uncalculated uh, effects at this point. Um, and we're in uncharted territory, um, and we're just a small representative sample of one and a half million nonprofit organizations in the United States that are similarly uh, asking the same questions we're going to be asking tonight. Are we merely experiencing the calm before the storm? Has the storm passed and we're going to weather it? We're going to duck and like that shoe thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, hard, and if you do intend to throw shoes tonight, just give us a little bit of warning. The lights are bright up here and we don't, we, okay. Um, so here to help us address these questions tonight um, are, are, pe are people who many of you know, I think many of you are in the room because you know them. Um, I've known all of them for a very long time uh, as colleagues in the nonprofit sector in different parts of our endeavors. Uh, let me uh, share them with you right now and share them afterwards uh, so that you have the opportunity to interact with these fine folks. Uh, to my far right, um, the president and CEO of the Weingart Foundation, former executive director of Covenant House. So he ran a nonprofit organization some years ago, for those of you who just think he was always a funder and you're born into that kind of role. Um, no, he ran a nonprofit organization, uh, Fred Ali. She, uh, the next uh, guest, is uh, the principal of a consulting firm that works with many nonprofit organizations. Uh, she is the founder of the California Black Women's Health Project, a trustee of the Liberty Hill Foundation, a former program director where I met her at the California Wellness Foundation many years ago, and uh, uh, her consulting firm is called uh, Jamat Rollins. Uh, welcome, Fran Jamat. Um, former vice president of the California, for programs of the California Endowment and currently the vice president of community investment at United Way of Greater Los Angeles, please welcome Alicia Lara. Um, tonight we have an announcement that's not public until tomorrow. And right here on the 
on the podcast. She is uh, the f near to be former executive director of LA Health Action, an advocacy group for health systems reform in the Southern California region, and the newly named deputy, uh, health deputy to Los Angeles County Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas, Yolanda Vera. And finally, um, a colleague uh, from the days when he ran a nonprofit organization called Chrysalis, um, which is an employment organization serving homeless people in Santa Monica and downtown Los Angeles. Now, uh, because he was entrepreneurial and created an entrepreneurial position at the University of Southern California, he's professor of clinical, I have to read this, professor of clinical management and organization and founding director of the Society and Business Lab at the Marshall School of Business, USC, Adlai Workman. Let me go right to these folks and uh, get started on the conversation tonight. Um, so folks, by way of introducing yourselves, and we'll start with Fred over there, um, uh, and letting the audience kind of get to know you and hear your voice uh, quickly, I'd like each of you to share with us your greatest hope and your greatest fear about what's happening in the current economy right now, its effect on communities, and in particular, uh, its effect on not-for-profit organizations that you care about. Fred. Thanks, Paul, and it's, it's really good to be here tonight. Um, well, well, quickly, um, I guess I would begin by saying that Los Angeles is a, a better, more livable, healthier, more vibrant um, place to live because of the work of nonprofit organizations. And we are facing a situation where um, the nonprofit community is in trouble. Um, as Paul mentioned, this is an unprecedented financial crisis that we're facing, and I think the threats to the sector are real. So my concern is that many of the good things the sector does are, are threatened, and we, we, we risk the possibility of, of, of losing these great, great, great assets to our community. So that's, that, that's my fear. My hope is that we will eventually emerge from this, and my hope is that when we do emerge from this crisis, the sector emerges stronger um, uh, than, than, than it did when it, uh, um, uh, than, than prior to the crisis. And I, so I think there's opportunity to build capacity and strengthen the sector, and I think we have to keep our eye on that hope as well. Okay, good. Fran, greatest hope, greatest fear? Uh, greatest fear. Uh, my greatest fear is that we will forget and lose all the progress that we've made in the last couple of decades. That uh, the tremendous diversity that's here in this room and that we see in the uh, nonprofit sector has largely come on board in a new era, a sort of, shall we say, post-civil rights era and it's very easy to forget that progress and to go back to business as usual. I would hope that um, we pull out all of our lenses and think about the implications for women, for people of color, for people who live with conditions that um, uh, require special assistance and needs, and that all of those people need to be kept close to the decisions that are made about their 
well-being. So I hope we don't disband all the good stuff that we've done. Okay. My hope, I'm, I sort of cut my teeth in the self-help movement. And so I have this tremendous uh, optimism and belief that this is basically uh, more of a spiritual crisis than an economic crisis. That fear is running rampant and that we are allowing ourselves to be overtaken by it. I think everybody on this panel has been an executive director of a nonprofit. We've all faced cutbacks. We've all lost jobs. We've all come back. Um, and that somehow we've managed to keep our work in our heart and stay connected to our work, even though our places of employment may have changed. So my, my hope is that we find uh, that spiritual connection, our, our common ground, that we work together, and that we come out of this better. Great, spiritual connection. Alicia. Well, I would agree with a lot that's been said. You know, I've, I've spent my entire professional career in the nonprofit sector and um, running organizations or helping to run organizations. And um, this feels very different. And I think for many people in the room, this might feel different. Many of you, and I, I, I'm happy to see so many friends in the audience, have been in this work for so long. Let me just say, I have a certain optimism and sort of in the face of this. Um, because we have this new administration, um, and the conversations have, in my opinion, profoundly changed. And I think that Los Angeles is not the same place that it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when you had, you know, 12 guys that ran L.A. kind of running L.A. You don't have that. But So what has happened instead has been this... Um, this, this generation of tremendous leadership coming from community uh, and some very powerful things that had happened post-1992. And I think that we should continue to build on that. I think what will happen, and my fear, um, kind, of, you know, kind of going on what Fran just said, is that we, uh, as a community, will become irrational in our fear. Uh, and that fear makes us all do um, crazy things. And so my hope is that the relationships that have been in play will stay in play, and that in an effort to protect ourselves, we don't throw each other under the bus. And that's always my fear. So when that starts to happen, I think clearly bad things will happen. I hope and I expect that the tremendous kind of relationships that have been in play again, for all of these years, through so much that we've all been, have gone through in the city, um, will remain in play and that people will remember that. But Alicia, the sector is all about collaboration and cooperation, not competition, right? Well, what we'll talk more about that. that. <laughs> <laughs> Yolanda, your response, greatest hope, greatest fear. I'm gonna start with my, my greatest fear, um, and I guess echoing a lot of what Alicia said, my fear is that um, this will spark a panic. When I, when I look in the audience, I think a lot of us are doing the work that we're doing because we feel some passion. We could be out there uh, making a lot more money, or at least we, we could have been out there making a lot more money. Uh, and, and instead, instead uh, there was this drive to live um, a mission-driven life. 
And, and my worry is that the panic about the day-to-day -day demands of how you pay the bills, how you keep your staff running, will cause us to, to lose uh, so many of the accomplishments that we've made, but also cause us to walk away on a personal level from kind of answering that call that we've uh, all been hearing and that bring us to this room today. Um, so my hope is uh, that this, this level of challenge will, will spark, maybe not immediately, but will spark this renaissance of, of new thinking. And when you look historically at the challenges that our country has faced, you know, whether it was the Great Depression, um, which sparked a new social compact um, to really uh, help the, those, uh, the public that were, didn't have any safety net under them, or whether it was a civil rights movement in the 1960s, which sparked the Civil Rights Act, Medicaid program, amazing new social programs. I feel like you, you see this kind of this swinging of both the immediate impact and worry and then this larger stepping back and creative response. So my hope is that um, as, as we grapple and do the hustle, what was the two, the two verbs, the hustle? Hustle and hunker down. The hustle and hunker down. After we do the initial hustle and hunkering down, we'll start kind of thinking about what, what can we do within our nonprofits and our work that really get at the essence of what we do best and continue doing that because Lord knows we, we really are gonna need it more than ever. And Adelaide, introduce yourself with your greatest hope, your greatest fear. First, a confession. Um, I haven't spent my whole life in nonprofit. I spent 18 years as an investment banker. You can throw your shoes now. <laughs> Um, there's a famous saying on Wall Street is, how does an investment banker say F you? Uh, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I want to say don't believe it. Don't believe that people are out of money. Don't believe that corporations don't have any money. I believe, my hope, is that you guys won't give up is that you will hold people accountable for what they have. This is LA, the economy is not the rest of the country. Hollywood's doing okay. Real estate is not, we're not having a foreclosure every other block in LA. This is a different kind of town and don't believe it because my fear on the other side is that people who have money will use this as an excuse to cut back their giving that the guy who had 200 million, who now saw his portfolio fall through the roof to 140 million, will use it as an excuse not to give a check anymore. Don't let them get away with that. So my fear is that they're gonna try, but my hope is that you in this audience will not let them get away with it. Okay. <laughs> On the applause meter Adlai wins. <laughs> He wins well, for thank you very much. <laughs> he wins for optimism, and I tend to be a bit of an optimist. But I did, uh, as I was uh, preparing for this today, begin to think about the, the the question of. So why should the nonprofit sector survive? We're making a big assumption here about value, and I buy the spiritual side. I buy the notion of mission driven. Um, but let's get more concrete here. What's the value of the sector? What 
warrants anybody taking any kind of interest and saying that nonprofit needs to survive. That sector, that group of nonprofits doing that kind of valuable service need to survive. Uh, Alicia, let's start with you. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, um, in, and probably everyone in the audience could, could answer this question uh, better than I. Um, you, you know, I, I think that there are lots of folks uh, in the community that believe in the value of, of charity, and, and that's all well and, and good. I tend to think that the value of the nonprofit sector is much more strategic than that. Um, and it's much more than just the services that someone provides to someone else. And I think those things really are important, um, believe me. But there is this notion of the nonprofit sector s serving sort of as a platform for communities to be able to speak about what their own reality is. And I think that's critical because I don't think any, it doesn't happen anywhere else to speak about what their own um, hopes and fears are, what it means to their own lives um, to be poor, what it takes to, to move out of that, um, to get access to the things that they need is gonna be very, very critical. And at some level, somewhere along the line, the notion uh, that the public sector um, could or should be doing that is something that's been um, at question, and, and, and to pick up on Adelaide, because I want applause too, I do think that <laughs> the nonprofit sector, the value of the nonprofit sector is to hold the public sector accountable about what the responsibility and what their accountability is to people, um, whoever they may be, whether they're voting or not, whether they're rich or poor, whatever. Uh, and I've found that no one really can hold them as accountable as the nonprofit community. So I think that's a huge value. So you would argue that this is a prime time for advocacy groups to oh, yeah. organize. Come on, right? Yeah. Advocacy, policy. <laughs> there we go. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, your budgets are really going up. <laughs> but let me let me let me ask Adlai. Uh, business uh, commercial uh, enterprises are uh, long um, known to look down their nose at nonprofit organizations. Uh, poorly run, too complicated. Oh, that social stuff. Um, are you truly seeing that happen out there? Uh, in the business community that you deal with, um, or is there really a sense of uh, a preservative mentality, a survive, this sector should survive mentality that could render some support from the commercial <clears throat> sector that would, in fact, uh, buoy the nonprofit sector? There's no doubt that um, everybody is going to be held more accountable. People are going to have to figure out how to measure their results. If I was going to go home and give you a homework assignment as a professor, now I can do that. Um, it would be to make sure that you have specific measurements that make sense in business terms to people to explain to them that you are being effective in what you're doing. There's no doubt about it. But I've sat in the last month with giving officers at corporations all over the United States. And the truth is, is that what they're saying is, it's still relationships. It's still our personal belief in your organization and that somebody within their organization is your champion, okay? At the same time, they are all asking me, almost unanimously, when some of you guys are gonna go out of business? When some of you guys are gonna merge? When some of you guys are going to, us guys, are going to realize that um, 
that maybe you're a good program but not a whole nonprofit, and that by joining together, you're going to save some money and create a stronger unit to get through this. They're expecting, without a doubt, to see you guys make an effort to be more effective, efficient, accountable. Um, and with that, they're going to be happy to continue to fund. So let me bump over to Fred, because uh, you, you mentioned the word relationships. And I'm wondering, from the position of a foundation president, um, are you suddenly having better relationships or more relationships? Uh, people wanting to renew relationships uh, in ways that they hadn't before. Um, give us a little intelligence insight from your chair as president of a foundation. Um, my phone rings a lot. Um, we have, um, yeah, a lot of people are, um, are, are calling our office. Um, wanting to know how we are going to react to, uh, um, to the needs of the sector right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, relationships are important, but they're certainly not the, uh, they're, they're only one piece of the, you know, of the, of, of the equation. Um, it sort of gets back to, to what Adlai was talking about. It's, it's really important that a nonprofit organization that comes to, a, to, a, to any funder, a private, in this case a private foundation, you have to make your case. You have to demonstrate the value that you are providing uh, to the community. And uh, that's, our bottom line is, is looking at that, the value that's being provided um, with the services that you are proposing for, for our support. So relationships are important, but uh, the bottom line is, is it goes back to the services being provided. You know, the, the issue though is that, um, in some respects, um, my, my concern is that, uh, that it, going back to Adley's comment, um, you need to precisely measure what it is you're doing. Um, all well and good to say that. Very, very difficult in our sector to do that. You know that as well as I do. And right now, organizations are facing increasing service levels, and they're running to keep up with that. So in a way, it's, it's, it's almost too late to come back and do that retooling uh, in order to meet the new demands of the funder who wants better measurement. So that's why I come back to my, my, my earlier point. It's time, I think, that we sit, you know, we step back as, as practitioners in the field and understand what it is we can do better, how we can better build the capacity of our organization to make the case not only today but in the future because this is not going to go away anytime, anytime soon. And so taking, taking this time, um, uh, using this time to build the strength and capacity of our organization I think is really important. All right, so we're talking organizations and uh, Fran referenced uh, this notion of the sector as more than just a place for the delivery of service. It's actually a place where people's voices are amplified for um, positions about the public good and to advance the public good. And, and I'm, I'm interested in the, the kind of contrast between this notion of professionalism in the sector uh, and you guys are saying, um, you know, drive more toward professionalism. It'll convince the people with the money to, you know, invest in your organization. And you're saying, but there's an opportunity to here to renew a kind of sense of, uh, um, of America, if I can interpret, American investment in this 
thing we call nonprofit organizations, but that are really a manifestation of civil society. Um, go deeper there with us and talk about the, the sort of the, the tug and the pull between that sort of notion of self-help, voluntary self-help, and this, this pull that these guys are making in the direction of the sector, um, making its case by being more professional. Well, I love Fred. <laughs> but, uh-oh. <laughs> and and I, I know that sitting up here and looking at him and hearing him, that his words have a, a kind of frightening tone, too. You know, it gives the image of, you know, the place is going to be crawling with evaluators. And I see you out there, Lindy, too. So <laughs> I, um, I, I think that there's an articulation issue here because I think that foundations really value and appreciate what we do and that we have to learn how to say it to them in a way that satisfies their needs but doesn't take the soul out of what it is. And having said that, I think that, that you know, this rootedness in self-help, nobody is worried about Alcoholics Anonymous today going out of business. <laughs> Ain't nobody worried about it. Right? Right. Because they've got a model that works. And you know what? If you go down to the courthouse, the judges are sending people to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you do 28 days or whatever in recovery, when they get out, they tell you to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And we do this as a matter of practice without having any policy support for this organization at all. And they don't want it. So if we really think about ways, if we can really, if there are ideas whose time has come again, this would be the time to think about engaging consumers people who need services as deliverers of services, and then, um, because I really was tempted to take off my shoe and throw it, um, about the idea that the I think that we have, you know, we've been there and done that on, you know, you just need to imitate corporate America. Because we, look where we are. You know, Enron kind of did that for us, okay? So we have to find efficiencies in our own way. Of, of working, and we have to look at people who we think of as helpless and dependent and say, what is it that you can do to become helpful and then believe that in that helping, they become better. And, and, and yes, they become less dependent on us, and, but they become better and that we, we can increase the helping. So that's an opportunity. That's an that opportunity for your capacity building theme there, Fred, uh, that we can build going forward. But if somebody went to Fred and said that, I've got this idea to do it, you know, foundations are conditioned to ask, well, who's going to run it and what kind of degrees do they have and what theory of change are you working on and where's the logic model here? And, you know, people go, what? I think you should give her some applause because that's <laughs> right. That's a lament well-voiced, uh, yeah, peculiar that, that to the sector. AA is effective at what they do. All right, what's, so let's, let's jump over to, oh. uh, to Yolanda here um, and, and, get a, uh, and weigh, weigh in on behalf of your future employer. Um, 
the government of the county of Los Angeles. You're looking at, uh, uh, you're dealing a lot with health agencies. Health agencies are dependent on county contracts uh, for the most part to deliver the services they deliver. Um, what are you going to tell Mark when he asks you um, exactly how we ought to cut and in what priority order uh, the services out in the community to people who have needs? I'm going to take off my shoe right now. <laughs> You know, this is this is a really hard issue, and and I think uh, you know I'm a, I'm a lawyer by by training, and so I'm I'm used to a prove it approach and to a certain extent, and so I I think to a certain extent uh, that this this need to really um, creatively think how to integrate your services, where can you partner, how do you get down to the thing that you do best that nobody else can do, but the thing that people will need and you can make your case, whether it's self-help, whether it's policy, whether it's something else, I feel like we need to do that uh, on the, the public level as well too. And, and I feel like we need to be held accountable when we're not efficient and not doing what we need to do in a way that's responsive um, to what the local community actually looks like and needs. So I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I feel like uh, what I would would hope that we would do uh, within the public service is really take a hard look at ways that we could increase efficiencies, that we could uh, uptick our our outcomes, and really think. Uh, creatively how we could deliver the best care in the best way with those key partners um, that we need to talk to um, uh, if we're going to make it because we cannot sustain we cannot sustain a public system that has no outcomes no repercussions no consequences when it doesn't do things in the best way it can okay so um we have a stimulus package that will probably go before Congress uh, sometime in the first uh, two weeks of the new Obama administration. Um, Robert Garcia, many of you know, a public interest advocate locally, uh, was telling me the other day that there better be a line item in there for parks, for youth employment, for arts projects. Um, are you, are you, are you um, ready to make that case strongly to the Obama administration that support through and to the nonprofit sector organizations is a critical part of a fiscal stimulus package uh, and integral to the infrastructure that sustains America? Sure. Okay? Yeah. Let me, let me just tell you about one conversation um, that I think is going on in, in the new administration. Um, VISTA. Um, um, AmeriCorps. Uh, right now, nonprofits have to match, put up a match. Do away with that match. Do away. Make service real, and 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 provide the labor that that we're we're losing as a result of the cutbacks. Okay. I think that's a, that's something that the new administration could do very easily. Um, the whole green jobs thing is 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 uh, very uh, appealing. Um, I think all of the county health facilities should be green. And I want you to do that. And therefore, everyone working for them is in a green job. And, and hire all these people to change the light bulbs, fix the roofs, put the solar panels on, and, and, and create jobs, of course. I think that's what the stimulus package ought to do. And some of it ought to go to the automakers, but, you know. So, um, so respond. 
So I've done a lot of research lately on the WPA, the Works Project Administration, which is what this is copying. Um, 1930s, um, 8 million people were put to work. 8 million people were put to work building the infrastructure of America. The, the general thinking is that there is not a community in America that does not have a park, a bridge, a building, or a road that was, not, that was built by, everybody has one, built by the WPA. There is a difference, though. And the difference is, is that that was before environmental impact studies. Mm -hmm. It was before community responses and meetings. Hold it. I think he's going to propose deregulation. Um, Good. I, I, I'm, my fear is, is that there are not enough, what are the, what's the term they're using, shovel-ready projects that will add value to the communities that they're in um, and that we will instead be making our decisions as to how to invest that on what's ready and it won't be more than five minutes before we hear accusations of pork barrel funding and which district gets what. I agree absolutely. We have to figure out a way to use that package to get services to you guys, to get people to volunteer with or, or to work with you guys. Um, I think, though, it is incumbent upon you and all of us to build that model. I'm going to tell you, my guess is, is if the government came to you tomorrow and said, look, I got 150 people out back there ready to go to work. First ones at the door get it, that most of you aren't ready for that, that most of you don't have policies in place to deal with it. And we've made this mistake before. Those service providers who don't have advocacy roles end up missing the boat on these. So pay attention. Figure out how you can participate. And my guess is go to your congressman and say, look, I want a piece of this, and here's what we can do for the community. And make sure you're on that list, because they're putting out a lot more money than there are projects. Fred, um, Adley's just proposed a, uh, a, uh, an investment for your capacity building in initiative, and that would be in uh, service organizations to build their advocacy voices in the new environment that says more money's going to be coming to communities for jobs and job programs. Some of that's going to be channeled through nonprofits. Respond. Good proposal. Bad proposal. Uh, I, think it's, I, I think it's an excellent proposal, and I think it's, I, I, I think it's critically important. You know, the the other thing that I would say though is I I spent a good deal of time today visiting with organizations that are um, uh, are very dependent upon government sources of support that um, are in very, you know, because of delayed payments, and now we're talking about. IOUs. Um, these organizations, just like organi organizations in the private se in the private for profit sector, they need access to capital, and that needs to be part of the stimulus package as well. Fred, Fred have you looked at PRIs? Yeah, we we uh, our foundation does PRIs. Everybody knows PRIs are related investments. They're they're <coughs> low interest loans that are made to nonprofit organizations for a charitable purpose. So would you consider loans, or you think that foundations would consider loans to advance people that cash flow against this IOUs that government's offering them? Yeah, I, kn I know a number of, of foundations that uh, are, in fact, considering opening up that possibility to nonprofit organizations. It's something that our, that, that our foundation would consider. 
Um, but it's, but again, I wanted to go back to the stimulus package because there is, is a lot, I, I couldn't agree more with the case that, the, the Adlai's point about you need to make your case, get a hold of your congressman, let them know what you can do in your local community. But there's a more immediate thing that needs to be done. That package has got to provide some access to capital, I'm, I'm repeating myself, for nonprofit organizations. It's, to me, one of the most critical issues facing the sector today. Is there an intensified discussion going on in the private philanthropic community, and I put this to Alicia and uh, Fred directly, um, about ways in which we have to re fundamentally reprioritize our grant making, or we're going to lose opportunities in the developmental period here that's happening parallel with the administration? Well, I, I would say in, in my mind, and, and it may sound like a terrible thing to my friends in philanthropy, but I, I don't, I think that f philanthropy has to not act as business as usual right now because it's not business as usual. And I would suggest that philanthropy collectively, um, and this is not, let me just say this isn't the complete answer because can, philanthropy can't fix what is going on in the larger economy, but that um, for, for Lansbury to put aside, and I can hear Paul Brest disagreeing with me already, for nothing more than the next, the next two years to say, you know what, collectively, we are going to look at cash flow situations, credit lines, core operating support, whatever those things are, and hunker down with our nonprofit friends because that's what it takes right now. And then, and, and to be clear, to say, you know, after two years, we, we will not say that this is going to be forever. So after two years or whatever time period, and I'm just saying two years because assuming that the, you know, recession ends at some point to say, you know, we can kind of emerge from this bunker and kind of go back to maybe some things, which may or may not. I mean, I know Fred and Weingart Foundation has done an outstanding thing in terms of doing more around cooperating support. We have always done core operating services, the single most valuable thing that nonprofits can do. Um, but the notion of the latest and greatest innovation, you know, transformation kinds of projects, all those great words that we've used, that God knows I've used, is that should just stop doing that. Just knock it off. Two years at minimum, I would call on all foundations to do core operating support for some period of time and hunker down with people. Um, and then get involved in investment, because this goes back to we have a profoundly broken, dysfunctional state system of government. We should be all over this. So in addition to the core operating support, policy and advocacy <laughs> to get your clients and get yourselves out there, because I think what's going to happen is the moment that IOUs go out there, Middle-class folks are going to just go crazy, but guess what? And you know this. The state has been doing this to poor people for years. So, you know, we have to collectively put our sort of, how we can't all be in the same room because so-and-so and two years ago or ten years ago and we're not speaking to each other. Like, stop. Nonprofits have to stop the turf stuff as well and focus because when we don't, this is the kind of stuff that happens. But we have to revisit things like... Proposition 13 and, and, and other kinds of things. Fran and Fred, I'm going to let you respond to an article or an excerpt from an article in the January 6th issue of The Economist magazine, uh, where Paul Brest, who was just mentioned, uh, 
president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and Vartan Gregorian of the Carnegie Corporation were having a conversation. And Mr. Bress suggested that the downturn might provide an opportunity to rationalize the nonprofit sector. There are now around 1.6 million nonprofits in America employing one in every 11 workers, which he deemed excessive. Many of these nonprofits duplicate each other underperform and miss out on economies of scale because they're too small. Tough times could encourage them to collaborate more, sharing back office functions and maybe even merging. Yet when pushed, neither foundation boss seemed confident that the outbreak of efficiency would happen. Are you confident that the outbreak of efficiency would happen? No. Okay. Uh, Fran, are you? No. No, I, 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 um, I don't think that, that that's true, and I especially don't think it's true. I, I mean, Mr. Bress himself is employed in a nonprofit. So I think we, it's just too broad a field to look at in that way, and, and um, that is my fear, that they're going to say, well, now we have too many, and we're going to cut back, and, you know, all those that sort of formed and didn't really get started are, are going to be... Um, forged into some kind of artificial uh, relationship with more mature organizations, many of which underperform. And so I think we've got to take a more rational approach. Okay. Fred, you uh, talked about capacity building earlier. You talked about one area that uh, might warrant some investment is not merger back backroom efficiency, but advocacy in uh, charitable organizations uh, that are positioned in the service sector to really know what the hell they're talking about. Um, what else, for survival's sake, from your sector's point of view, and I hate to put you in the yeah. position of speaking as you know all foundation presidents, uh, but for the moment, bear with me. Um, what else? What else? in this capacity, the new opportunity for capacity, should we encourage? And then Fran, from Liberty Hill's perspective, and then from this, the perspective of running nonprofit organizations, the three of you. Go, Fred. Well, let me begin. We, we, are, we are responsive grant makers, many of you know. And um, in, when we, when, 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 uh, when the financial crisis became uh, and its ramifications began to, to, to make themselves it, it very clear what the situation here was in Los Angeles. We decided that uh, it, was, it, was, it was probably necessary, being a responsive grant maker, to do what nonprofit organizations had been asking us to do, and that is to increase core operating support, um, um, provide general operating support for, for, for infrastructure and administrative purposes. So. Um, as some of you know, we have we have recently announced that that we are temporarily suspending our normal grant making, and we are going to focus on providing core support. In fact, uh, as long as we're making announcements today, um, uh, within the next 48 hours, uh, those guidelines and the application instructions will be up will be up on our website. We believe that um, core operating support, properly planned for and spent is it provides nonprofit organizations um, uh, with an opportunity to build capacity. Because it provides, it, for, anyone, for, for those of us who have run these organizations, what we treasure most is unrestricted funds that, um, that, that, that allow us to do the things that we know need to be done, to think create, creatively, 
to realize the kind of efficiencies that, that are important to, to make, make our organizations better. So for the time being, we think that's the best avenue to, to, to support organizations at this time of need and help them build capacity. If the rest of the sector falls, I know you have a lot of grateful folks, but it'll be the, the, uh, uh, what, the apotheosis of arguments that have been made for the last 25 years that I've been involved in this sector um, by nonprofit organizations to private foundations at virtually every conference that I've been to. Um, I, and so I think there's a silver lining here. I think you're going to see a lot of foundations uh, take a similar approach. But I also, I want to, you know, I want to come back to my friend Paul Brest. You know, let's not forget a point that Paul was making. Paul, the Hewlett Foundation is, 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 is engaged in, in looking at some very complex, tricky sort of issues, global warming being one, that, 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 that really need a long-term focus and investment. It would be a shame to see the Hewlett Foundation give up that focus because they're in it for the long term. And I think we, you know, I think we need to recognize this. Foundations are different. Fair Foundations caveat. involved in medical research, we don't want them to give up that function. Fair caveat. What, uh, Fran, uh, will Liberty Hill be reprioritizing and adjusting um, to? Or is it pretty, pretty satisfactory what you've been doing uh, about organizing at the community level and the grassroots um, and funding advocacy for 20 years? Well, I think we want to um, be more strategic uh, in our giving. We've been very responsive in terms of seed funding, uh, but now we want to look at some um, very specific areas, in, and we function within L.A. County, and, and uh, perhaps dig uh, deeper. Um, we invest in change, not charity, so leveraging uh, dollars and, and um, working with partners like Weingart, I believe we are, um, are uh, able to work with smaller nonprofits in a way that, that Weingart and some of the larger foundations would find more cumbersome. Um, we do policy advocacy training for example, and we would. I mean, we have advocates, we have allies, I'm, I mean, now in public office. I think because, you know, we know and love Yolanda that uh, people think, well, we don't have to worry anymore. We don't have to go down to the Hall of Administration. No, we got to show up in even more numbers to support Yolanda as, as she tries to uh, implement the kind of change we've been looking for for so long, and I think that's true of Mr. Obama too, that we can't just say, oh well, now it's happened. Organizations need to know how to advocate for themselves. Uh, community clinics need to get back to the business of being community clinics and not community health centers. Mm -hmm. They've become medical model. They need to be community clinics and engage constituents, and part of that uh, idea of, of loneliness, the social connection that goes with being a healthy community has to take place in all of those nonprofit settings. So Yolanda, you've just been lobbied. Yes. You've just been lobbied. Publicly, before she <laughs> even got to the desk. On, on the podcast, by the way. Um, and you too, by the way, can lobby um, your opinion by going to the Zocalo website after tonight and rendering your thoughtful reflections, just as Gregory said, and give input, and it'll all show up on the site. I was told to make that commercial at some point during the course of the conversation today. Uh, uh, Alicia, um, 
United Way, gonna going to keep on the uh, operating fund uh, track, stay there, Absolutely. lead the I, way? I think it's, it's incredibly important. I happen to think that core operating support is extremely strategic. I talked to a lot of people in philanthropy that don't do it because they don't think it's particularly strategic, and I would disagree. I think that core operating support has to be very intentional, and I think a lot of it is based on the leadership, it's based on track record, it's based on risk, uh, all things that are good things to, to do. I think that it should be competitive. I don't know that every nonprofit should get core operating support. Um, our core operating support uh, and the grants that we've made and kind of re-engineering that whole thing in a very competitive process was with organizations um, that by and large had a history of being able to demonstrate what they could do in in community to tell their story and not to come up with some crazy logic model, but that can tell a story about their work that can show that they can work with other community-based organizations. I mean, one of the things that, that we do is to try to get funders together. We've got a, a collaboration of funders that are focused on job training, for example. It's a way for funders to work together. There is, I think it's absolutely appropriate to ask foundations to work together differently, since foundations seem to be asking community-based organizations to work together differently. And they don't do it because just for the sake of it. I do think that nonprofits need to think and work together differently uh, because the problems are so complex. And for, to me, for folks that say, oh, that's a nonprofit down the street, I've never met them before, is a completely unacceptable answer in today's age because these are the same families that you're working with. And so to think about, even though you may be doing something that's completely different, you know, you're working on after school, it seems like you should be working with the folks that are doing job training in your community. It's the same families. And so this notion of getting beyond turf is going to be incredibly important. And I think that we ought to expect the foundation community and the public sector to do that. One of the things that we do is to gently nudge the county and the city to work together on, God forbid, homeless issues, because this can get solved. It's, it really can get solved. But it does force us all to work together differently to really think about how we can actually um, save money by housing people, by doing on-site services, by preventing families from becoming homeless, all those kinds of things. But it does require a certain amount of um, political will and public will to do this differently. Yolanda and Adley, I'm going to loop back to you. Um, and, but I want to go out here first before we do. Um, I know we've got people with microphones in the room, and you all have been an attentive audience, and I know a very thoughtful audience, um, and probably have come up with a few questions of your own that are burning in your minds. Um, so I see a hand going up right over there, sure. <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to let Just before uh, we get started with the Q&A, we want to remind you that this is being recorded for podcasts for both video and audio. So all questions must be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for a Sokolo staff to get to you. There's two of us going around with the microphones. Um, also at this time, our donation buckets will be going around. We do appreciate any and all support. So contribute <laughs> to the dialogue much. and to yes. Zocalo. Yes. Go ahead. Right here. Hi, I'm Tony Loudermilk. I'm with the Center for Lifelong Learners. Um, I have two collaborative partners that share my space. They are health providers. I am after school. 
we are looking to put together um, a collaborative effort to come to you for funding. The biggest question is, how do we need to dress ourselves up to make you look at these collaborations that are coming to you for the first time? I am a longtime um, grantee with WineGuard. I'm not too familiar with the rest of you, but my health providers have never been to WineGuard. So, you know, we've been funded by different organizations. How do we package ourselves for success? And is that an adequate grant proposal, Fred? <laughs> Fred. Do you, want to do, do you want to do a quick response, Fred? Yeah. Quick. First of all, you don't... You know, you don't need to dress yourself up, just tell the story. And um, it, we have a rather, uh, some of you all who have gone through our process may disagree with this, but um, we, 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 we have a standard application process. But, um, and there's certain thresholds obviously you have to meet when you submit that application. But the important, the, the, the important part of the process begins when you get into discussion with the program officer. And, you know, and my advice to you is that, um, um, you, you know, tell your story, um, uh, ask lots of questions. Uh, we will certainly ask lots of questions of you. Um, our, our approach oftentimes is to go into the community and ask recipients of your service for, for their thoughts and advice and, and, the, and, and the services that you're, you're provided. So it's a really comprehensive process. Fred, so. and, and, and I, I, we have to say, it's also a process that is competitive. Yeah. And uh, there, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers in that, um, in any kind of competition. Um, how do you uh, deal with the, the loser side of that where you, know, you have to say, Sorry, can't get out. It's 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 to me one of the most important things that a foundation um, needs to do and should do is provide organizations with with good reasons for a declination, so they can learn from that process. And so I think it, it really starts there. Um, we 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 and, and we weren't quite frankly always always real good at that. And we have we, we you know over the years we have recognized that that's a that that's a really important value to hold. People put a lot of time and effort into our applications. They deserve to know why they were not funded. And so, so you know, we, we, that, that's one of the things that we take very seriously. Next question. Yes, my question is for Adelaide. My name is Mary Gennis, and it's regarding the issue of consolidation. Um, there's been the relative success of corporate mergers in terms of market share, cost savings, and corporate branding is, is quite mixed. Additionally, published research by uh, Lapian and Associates that specializes in nonprofit mergers indicates that there are virtually no cost savings to mergers after the merger takes place and potentially no cost savings for the first three years. Given the, the relative success of the corporate sector and the research indicated from the nonprofit sector, what are individuals expecting in terms of results should consolidation actually occur? So, um I absolutely agree with that research, and I believe that research was not done in the last four months. I think that if the question becomes, do I go out of business or do I merge, I would consider a merger. If my question is, do I compete when I think I'm going to lose, or do I merge and form a stronger association, 
I think, I just, I think everything's changed right now. And I am told across, I, I've spoken to people in three cities right now across America who've all said that foundations in their community, a lot of community foundations, are working specifically on support for mergers. It is, it is hard. So, so the reason that nonprofit mergers are hard is because of exactly what we've been talking about and the reason that Fran and I want to throw shoes at each other. Nonprofits have to manage heart and head. Okay? Businesses don't. They just manage head. They just, they, they, all they have to do is, is do that. I trust your hearts. I do. I trust that you're in this for the right reason. I'm not necessarily sure I trust your heads. My experience has been my program's better than your program. My yoga for 14-year-old girls is better than your yoga for 14-year-old girls. So I'm opening up a yoga studio, a nonprofit yoga studio down the block. That doesn't work anymore. That is not going to work anymore. Fred's not going to put up with it. Um, United Way's not. Nobody's going to put up with it. So my question really becomes, in these times, either for many people it's going to be merge or die. And those are different situations. I mean, if we look at what happened in the financial community, obviously they blew it. But what's going on right now is for those who need to stay alive, the only option they have is to merge. So it takes cataclysm. I have a question up front here. Hi, Ursula Hyman. No one's mentioned boards and the role of the board. And what is your message to the board generally? And then secondly, a board member, of which I am on many, um, are somewhat concerned about liability because of the fact that many nonprofits are going to fail. So sort of a dual question. Um, why don't we shoot it to Alicia? You know, I, I um, had the opportunity to sit down with a group of uh, grantees for First Five um, uh, last week sometime, and there were about 40 people in the room, and we had this conversation about the shifts that are going on, the economic shifts, and we talked about the role of, of, of boards, um, because people do struggle with it. You know, oftentimes staff will feel like they've got to carry this burden um, alone, and I do think it's really critical, and we talked about this notion of how boards, well, first of all, really thinking, and this is another, I think, and an opportunity to really think about the skill sets that you need in order not only to survive this, because I think the issue is about surviving it, but thriving beyond. So really, what do you need in order to do that? And how you need to get the board engaged in terms of the kinds of brokering or opening of doors that board members can do, um, the, you know, calling people, getting engaged themselves in policy issues. It's something that oftentimes boards don't want to do, but they're, they're the ones that have the personal relationship with an elected official or through a fundraiser for so-and-so or this or that. And so sometimes you just have to give them other kinds of opportunities to do that. And I do think that the notion of getting their heads around what does it mean to have a collaborative relationship that could potentially lead to a merger or something like that. I mean, I, I think that we use the euphemism of merger, but in these times, you're often talking about an acquisition. And at the end of the day, you have to think about what is the best in the best interests of families um, that are out there. And, and you're quite right. I think that um, funders want to be helpful in that. So it may be a way for, to have a conversation about funder, uh, to funders about board development. And if the moderator can make an editorial comment, um, if your culture in your governing board um, has been for the last several years, where are we going to get money? 
um, it, you probably either ought to change that discussion to um, a, a, a somewhat more creative tack, um, or maybe you're a candidate to uh, go out of business in a timely way. Although I know none of the organizations that Ursula Hyman sits on the board of are in any kind of dicey financial shape. I know that for sure. Um, My name is Neil Schaefer, and I'm recently retired right now. And I know, I mean, how do you feel about having the government give the money to the non nonprofit sector, but making it a loan? I don't think they should. I think they should, you know, help them in some way that, you know, with the, with the money to, like, a bailout. Let's yeah. ask government. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I, I fully understood the question. No. Instead of letting the government give, give money to, to the uh, nonprofit organizations as a loan, they got to pay it back. Why don't they, you know, do it in a way that is an incentive program, and the government, you know, like uh, not like 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 a bailout sort of thing right now? Yeah, you know, I I really feel like there needs to be a a, a bailout of the nonprofit community and really a critical look of some of the federal restrictions which have made it more difficult for groups to to get funding. For example, I could just think of one off the top of my head. Um, I was a legal services attorney for 20 years and back during the Reagan years, they imposed these federal restrictions that essentially eliminated federal funding for advocacy, you know, lobbying, class action lawsuits. And, and that's like a real, now that we have a new administration, a real doable thing where you could look at some of those obstacles to help you get access to funding. I, I think there should be some strings attached to it and, uh, and, and some you know, measurements, some consistent outcomes so that there's a level of accountability. But I think this is an opportunity to really think about how do you maximize those dollars that are out there where there's unnecessary restrictions, so. Okay. Oh, we have a question. Look, oh. look. Way up here. If you could stand up for me, please. Hi, my name's Allison. Uh, I work with the Los Angeles Catholic Worker, and we run a soup kitchen in Skid Row. We're actually not registered as a nonprofit, and so our organization is run purely by uh, non-tax deductible donations. Um, do you, I, my question is, do you feel that there are um, inherent flaws in the structure of the nonprofit that hinders success. Consultant, Fran Jamat. <laughs> they are Fran. We always go to the consultant when we don't know who else to go to. And I usually have time to study a question and really uh, give a thoughtful response. I think I understand that um, rather than go through the process of incorporating and, you know, uh, uh, sort of being bound by those conditions expressed in a 990 form, that an organization chooses to be less formally organized, but its donors don't get the benefit of a tax-deductible contribution. So, you, you know, again, Passing the hat works in some places. Those of you who contributed tonight probably aren't looking for a deduction for your contribution. And if that is um, durable and sustainable, that's fine. 
it, on the other hand, if, if your organization, sort of, needs more and you want to go to a foundation, that is not acceptable that you are not organized, that you don't have a board, that you, uh, you really do have to meet the, the public benefit test. And it, it makes sense. And the process should um, not be so daunting. I mean, if you've had enough years of experience of doing this work, at some point, a group of people ought to make a, a decision about to keep doing it the same way. If you want a better result, maybe you might have to change the way you're doing business. And cataclysmic times are times to explore alternatives. Mm -hmm. The tax deduction isn't sacrosanct. Um, it is valued, uh, but it's not sacrosanct. Uh, and there are ways to operate clearly, as Catholic Workers Proven and others have, are beginning to experiment with, uh, outside of that incentive of tax deductibility. Uh, that may be one of the opportunities, uh, again, uh, Fred and other funders at the table, worth investing in. Hi, I'm Cheryl Dudley Robertson. I'm on several boards, and I have a quick comment and also a question. And the comment is that um, I've come across, I've been in the position of putting a lot of groups together uh, to work together on projects and things. And what I find is they don't know anything about each other. They have no idea that each other are out there, and there should be some other than the really well-known organizations, I'm very surprised usually that these organizations have no clue that they're on the next block working with the same families. So there should be something uh, that addresses that. But the question I have is a little bit more, uh, you're gonna have to work for this one, <laughs> which is I, I can't really figure out, and I don't know, and maybe you probably have thought about where should the government uh, leave off on things because mostly the nonprofits are doing things that the government should have been doing in the first place. So where is that line uh, that should be met? Well, and, and, and I think the other question is, is the current cataclysmic economic time a time for government, perhaps, to rethink its relationship with the not-for-profit sector and perhaps pick up more by providing more services directly rather than through nonprofits. I mean, you run into cultural problems there with trust of government versus trust of nonprofit organizations, certainly, and community organizations. But would you like to respond? Yeah, to you know, I'm a big believer that there is a there is a, a a real need for government to fill that role of the safety net. But also, I, I'm a big believer in in public private partnerships, um, and I, I find that uh, not smaller uh, nonprofits are often so much better than the government at more efficiently delivering care. And I think one of the opportunities that this might spark, because we're going to need to watch our money more, I'm hoping, is just more creative ways to look at public-private partnerships to accomplish the same goal. And, and one of the phenomena that happen is that when there's a lot of pain, you, you start to kind of get together with the people that are next to you that might have more money but might have a different need. And we're starting to see that in the healthcare community. Um, one of the best things that the county ever did, probably within the last 10 years, was they started this program where they contracted with these small uh, uh, free and low-cost community clinics to provide services and do 
and provide that same service at about 10 times less the cost and the county provides the same service. So uh, if we can continue doing those types of things and approaching government officials with, hey, here's a way for you to save some money in your district so you can leverage those dollars for something else, I think there, and hope there would be a really, uh, there would be a renewed openness to those type of approaches. Good evening. Um, first of all, thank you all for spending your time sharing your ideas with us. Uh, my, I'm sorry, my name is Angela Johnson-Peters, and I'm a, a nonprofit management consultant. Um, in all, uh, the, the panel is, is wonderful and well-represented, but I'm just wondering, I work with a lot of arts organizations, and in times like this, we really, our souls need to be fed, and the arts do that very well. So I guess my first comment is to say and to, to implore those of you that are working with foundations to not forget about the arts organizations, because in general, arts organizations are funded at a far lower percentage at many foundations than the other essential community service. And just to, um, if anyone could speak a little bit about the notion of uh, WPA and policy advocates including the arts. Can you respond? Yeah, you know, so, so here's the here's the issue. I ran a nonprofit for seven years. It was a service direct service agency. Uh, my CEO sitting out there, and now she's running a nonprofit. Um, my excuse was I was too busy to do advocacy for the first six years. It's not my thing. There are advocacy organizations and there are service organizations. And the reason that the government is not considering a bailout for us is because we're not asking for it. Um, and the reason that they're not funding more arts is because it's not loud enough. We have to be louder. Why are they considering a bailout of, of the uh, auto industry? Because they're really loud. Now, they bought their access to government, which is different. Um, corporate contributions are not for good government. Um, but but we have to figure out a way to organize and hear our voices. You can no longer say, it is not my job, I'm a service agency. You have to be calling government, you have to be calling your city council members, you have to be calling Congress, you have to be writing letters to the senators, you have to make sure that your friends who are on the transition committee are involved and understand the issues. I think there is a willingness, and I believe there's a willingness in this administration to do the right thing, but there's a lot of noise around it. Skill set fast tracking at this point, important. Hi, my name is Leila Kumar. I'm a consultant to nonprofits. And my question is really about out of sort of the renaissance that we think may happen, are some of the funders thinking about funding new organizations and new projects out of that? Because I think this is a time of change and we shouldn't sort of cast aside new ideas. Let's go at Liberty Hill. Uh, new new ventures um, coming up, or just too early to tell? Can I just jump in for a second? Can no. we? Can we? I'm going to use that term from now on. Instead of a cataclysm, it's a renaissance. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're always in the business of looking for um, people who need seed money and who are starting. There, there's an enormous need for different kinds of work in the nonprofit community. Uh, some ideas are going out of style, and, and uh, someone talked about we need um, a way of, of collaborating um, 
organizations. So the whole notion of technology in the not-for-profit world and how it gets used, I think is one of those venues where we need to look for um, new and creative organizations to, to do that kind of, of work. It just may not work with an old organization. There are now foundations that are doing that. Uh, yeah, I think that new organizations should get started. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll be very candid. Um, the um, we are we are not uh, we are not going to fund uh, through the core support program, for example, that I talked about earlier. We're not going to fund new organizations because we think the needs of existing organizations providing critical essential services are too great right now, and that's where we want to focus our energy. We, we do have uh, a, a program at the Weingart Foundation. It's a, it's, it's a small grant program where we do look at small developing organizations and we will provide, we, we, we will continue to provide funding through that mechanism. But you know, the, the thing, I've been in the sector really all of my, my adult life and it's always curious to me that people will come up with the most creative of ideas and they'll come talk to somebody like myself or somebody like yourself who might be a management consultant. And, you know, you, you make the suggestion that, you know, there's an organization, to, to, to your point a, a while ago, there's an organization two blocks over that has a similar mission that is doing something similar to what you want to do. Why don't you go talk to them? It's always surprising to me it never ha how oftentimes it does not happen because people want to control the process. They want to create, control their organization. And that's what has stand, stood in the way for, for years with the kind of efficiencies that we could, we, we could gain in this sector if we would, if we would sort of let down our, our turf and, and simply cooperate with one another. I know but, it's a but we worked hard, Fred, to win that turf. Yeah. <laughs> um, just if you're looking at, if you know people who are looking at new ideas for organizations that might be partially or totally self-sufficient, new models for revenue-producing nonprofits. There are a large number, especially in Southern California, around LA, Santa Barbara, of venture investors, venture philanthropists, who are, wait, there's money waiting in line to fund the startups of those ideas. It's not the established organizations, it's not typically the basic social service organizations, but for those new ideas, come see me. I'm going to tell you there are lots of funders, more money than there are ideas. And just one more thing on that. I, I think the thing to understand is, is that there are some foundations out there who make it a point to fund brand new ideas, brand new organizations. So I think it's always about know your audience. I mean, you know, for some, they're not going to make that um, decision to do that and and. Personally, I don't think they need to be criticized for that. It's just you have to understand what that audience is. I'm always astounded. You know, you have to build up an organization and you make your way through. It always astounds me how brand new organizations, um, and, and in that case, you're, you're going to take a risk as a funder, so you should be prepared um, to answer some very hard questions. And I think that's completely within bounds. I'm always astonished at brand new organizations that ask for incredible amounts of money 
um, that frankly have no business doing that. And, and it just shows me that no homework has been done. And, 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 you know, I'm, like I said, I was raised in this sector. I will die in this sector, but I get really annoyed when I see that kind of thing. It just doesn't show that you did the homework. A question here to your left. This will be our final question of the night. If any of you guys have remaining questions, you can speak to our panelists at our reception taking place shortly out here in the garden. Thank you very much. I guess I'm the lucky one. Uh, Bill White, and I've spent 32 years in nonprofits, and I don't think we need a bailout. I think we need investment. And I look at corporations needing a bailout. I look at government needing a bailout. But quite frankly, I'll take nonprofit efficiency over any of those. And I think it's being proven. You know, many years ago, when Fred was going after Covenant House, I was raising money for Good Shepherd Center for Homeless Women. I didn't just drive by them on the street and certainly didn't expect government to help them. So I think what we need is to be at the table. The change that we can believe in in the nonprofit sector is to come to the table, get investment. I said to the mayor a few years ago, start an office of charities in the, in the mayor's office. I would say to Mark Ridley Thomas, start an office of charities in the county office. And I would say to the president, create a secretary of charity so that we can recognize and work together to make the difference that we need in this country. Thank you. Quick final thoughts from our panelists and then a proposal. Fred, final thought. Yeah, I mean. What are you taking away from tonight from what you heard here and from your colleagues? You know, I guess, um, I, I guess the thought that, that, that I'm, I'm taking away is that, um, you know, the sector, in my mind, I wouldn't be, have worked in the sector as many years as I had if I didn't believe it wasn't, it wasn't creative, vibrant, and capable of doing lots of things. And it's not so much anything that was said today, but I walk away feeling like it's a bit more hopeful than I would have expected coming into this room. That's, that's what I'm getting from all of you tonight, and that's very, very encouraging because there's a lot of work to be done, and uh, it's going to take that hope and uh, endurance to, to get the job done. Uh, let's go to Adlai. Uh, you know what? I actually want to yield my time to you. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you have more experience with more varied organizations in here, and you're just asking questions. I really want to hear what you. Well, that's my job. Your wrap. No, but I want to hear your wrap up. I, I will wrap up. Okay. Then. okay. <laughs> Frank. Well, I, I, I too appreciate the questions and the the thought and the energy in the room, and and um, appreciate seeing a, a full house for this discussion. I think that's a very good sign. I uh, I hope that there are connections made and that we um, continue to forge ahead. And my final thought to the person that asked about the arts and funding in the arts. Um, uh, it, it was a kind of crazy thing that I did at the Wellness Foundation, but we funded a dance troupe because, you know, fitness, health, um, uh, reducing uh, obesity, none, uh, it, it, it made all kinds of sense. So I think that we sometimes say arts, and we think that that doesn't apply across the board. And so we've got to broaden our thinking, and that would be our charge to my charge to you to leave with. Alicia, final thoughts wrapping up. What are you taking away from this conversation? Well, first tonight? I want to thank everyone for coming, um, and it's great seeing some terrific friends and kind of getting to know some of the work that's going on. I, I, I do think it's going to be a very difficult time, and I think that we are an extraordinarily strategic sector, and we have to um, 
talk about it more and act like it more because it's there. Um, and so people assume that we're not that, and, and we are. And so I'm, I'm grateful to the great thinking that people have brought to the table and looking forward to more conversation. Thank you. Yolanda. Um, I was thinking this morning uh, on the way to work, I stopped at a, a, at a garage and got my oil changed. And I happened to get in a conversation with a mechanic on, you know, are you feeling any difference in your business? And he said, no, you know, actually it's doing well because everybody realizes that they need to take care of their car and they need to change their oil more regularly. And so I think that's our challenge is, is what is, how can you make that case that you are doing something that we need all the more? Uh, given the economic downturn, and that you are the oil changer in the nonprofit community. So, Adley? I, I, I think that, um, you know, I love this community. I've, I've given the second half of my life, at least, to, talk, to this. Um, but I know I sound like a bit of an ass, um, but it's my job. Um, <laughs> But it is my job because I am representative, at least in this voice, of the people you're asking for money who aren't foundations and haven't spent their entire life being good folks, but have spent their entire life filling their briefcases in their bank accounts. They're not bad people. They just have different questions. And you really do have to be prepared to talk to them using the language I've been using uh, and the language you're using about investment. I'm telling you the money is there, but you know, you have to, you're going to have to work for it. Thank you all. I really appreciate your taking the time, as someone said, to be here tonight with us and, and, and invigorate a conversation that I know is going on all over the place. And let me, let me just sort of draw back from the conversation for a second and say, we talk about the nonprofit sector, but what is clear from the conversation tonight, what we mean is civil society. Um, we are a bulwark against... Um, disorder and chaos in a society that is uh, right now um, in a cataclysmic state, um, hopefully leading to a renaissance. But I think the kind of conversation that we're having among ourselves tonight in more of a formal way in this room um, and the appeal that I heard earlier for more regularity of that kind of conversation um, is instructive perhaps to Zocalo. And uh, while I believe Zocalo is a net contributor to the sort of the, the, the vibrancy of civil society in Los Angeles, to take and sustain over the next couple of years a reflective discussion on where are we now, not just in the nonprofit sector, but in the state of our civil society, and where are we going with that civil society here in Los Angeles so that coming out of this economic crisis, we experience the Renaissance as strongly, deeply, and sustainably as we possibly can. That's what I would challenge, perhaps, Zocalo to do, and maybe us at this table to advise Zocalo on how to do, and that's to get support for uh, a thread to the vast array of conversations that they already do that speaks directly to the subject how will nonprofits survive, and how will civil society flourish in Southern California? That's my proposal. I'll help if you'll help. Thank you very much.